Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello and you are welcome along to We Love Movies. I'm Gordon Hayden. This week the films under review are the live action version of Pinocchio from Back to the Future and Forrest Gump director Robert Zemeckis and the all-star whodunit ensemble See How They Run. We'll also be taking a look at the films of note from this year's Venice Film Festival and we'll have a roundup of this week's movie news. So lots to come over the next hour right here on We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. You are listening to We Love Movies. I'm Gordon Hayden and I'm joined by Olivia Fahey, Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser. And we're going to talk all things first about this year's Venice Film Festival. And one film which received a six minute standing ovation was the new one from Darren Aronofsky, The Whale. And a lot of the focus on this film has been for its star, Brendan Fraser, because it's been billed as a comeback of sorts. And there's a lot of goodwill to Brendan Fraser and people probably know him best from starring in the Mummy films from the 90s for director Stephen Sommers and he came on the scene really with in stateside it was known as Encino Man over here it was California Man with uh, Paulie Shore which was kind of like this goofy comedy and then his career kind of hit the skids a little bit with a number of flops but over the last few years he's been definitely rebuilding his career and I'm just going to start with you um, I don't know very much about The Whale but the big thing that Brendan Fraser he's he has pulled on a few pounds for it but he's also worn this big fat suit I don't know plot wise what's going on with this film have you heard much about it? Yes yeah, so what's about Brendan Fraser's character is this 600 pound man who's abandoned his family and he's trying to reconnect with his daughter and get back to health by all accounts very emotional heartstring pulling it's based on a play of the same name as well it's getting somewhat mixed reviews it's, it says Darren Aronofsky's one of his more kind of you know more linear films when you see he's done things like, you know, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, and one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life, Mother, uh, a couple of years ago as well. But everything coming out of it seems to be Brendan Fraser is absolutely incredible for it in this, and a lot of Oscar buzz around him. And you could see there was a video of him getting a standing ovation. He's trying to leave in the middle of it. You can see he's kind of the emotion of it is getting to him, and he's pretty much ushered back up on the stage, saying, "No, no, you've you've waited a long time for this. Sit down and enjoy your moment." So, like, I, I like that aspect of it as well. If nothing else, always great to see Brendan Fraser back on the screen. But like, Andy, I I touched on the fact that his career took a bit of a nosedive and that was off the back of it seemed like a series of flops and it seemed like he was in the wilderness for a while. Why was that? Was that off the back of just unfortunately just being in a string of films that just were box office duds? No, there was a number of things. One, obviously, the the fact that uh, the third movie film, The Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, didn't do particularly well and then G.I. Joe didn't do great either. But he got injured quite badly off the back of that and wasn't able to maintain the kind of the action movie physique. His back apparently was absolutely destroyed. In the middle of all this, he went through a very messy divorce, which he ended up having to pay off the basis of, you know, top of the line movie star Brendan Fraser, which he wasn't at the time. So as a result of kind of pay off the alimony, he had to do pretty much every single thing that was thrown his way. So I think 2013 alone, he'd done six or seven films, that none of which I don't think he would have ever heard of just to, you know, essentially keep his head above water and stay out of jail. In the midst of all that as well, there's the an accusation that the head of the Hollywood Foreign Press sexually assaulted him at a party. And because he spoke up about it and kind of made a big scene of it, 
he was ostracized from that. Nobody really wanted to work with him off that. So he wasn't offered anything big. And now it seems all of that has come out, you know, at the back of the, the Me Too movement. People have, in a way, apologized without ever admitting to any sort of guilt on their behalf. So it seems that all the, the, the backward politicking that had been harping Brendan Fraser, that has all now been removed. And he's been in things now. He's been cast in the, the Scorsese film, Killed at Flower Moon. He was also in Batgirl, which unfortunately, typical Brendan Fraser, so might not ever see the light of day now. So hopefully the comeback hasn't stopped before it started. So because by all accounts, he seems like a genuinely good guy. And it's it's always good to see them do well in Hollywood because as we know, truly on this show, there isn't that many of them left, Gordon. Oh, very true. I have a real soft spot for Brendan Fraser and I'm delighted for him. Chris, is it too early to say that he could be in the running for an Oscar? It probably is too early to say that he could be in the running for an Oscar, especially when we start to see the other, uh, the, the response to some other films coming out of Venice, uh, you know, Brendan Gleeson is already in 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 an Oscar talk now for 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 what many are calling an astonishing performance in the Banshees of Inisherin. and that's the new Martin McDonough one. Um, but at the same time, uh, to, to touch on something that Andy said, there are such few good guys in in Hollywood now that it would be amazing to see you know everyone get behind this actor who you know has always deserved a lot more than than what's been given to him. Both you know in terms of uh, his credibility as an actor, the, the the performances that have gone his way, the fact that no one really kind of got behind him when when. When 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 he, when he was at his lowest, the one thing that I wouldn't like to see because I'll reserve, I'll reserve judgment until it, uh, the, the the film is released until we're reviewing it here is for there to maybe be a backlash against this because if you searched the whale now on Twitter, you'll see that there is something of a backlash beginning, and that's to do with the portrayal of this 600 pound man in Darren Aronofsky's film and how, you know, prosthetics were used and maybe a fat suit was used. So you already have people starting to kick back against this because there has been this pushback in the last few years against, you know, actors wearing fat suits. So hopefully that doesn't, you know, that doesn't get in the way of what everyone, what a lot of people are calling an amazing performance. But as I say, look, with reserve judgment, it would be great to see uh, Brendan Fraser, uh, you know, get some awards buzz there, but we'll see what happens. Chris, just to go back on that, why are people kicking up about an actor wearing a fat suit? Well, Gordon, I think there might be a conversation around it because why couldn't a bigger man have portrayed that part. And whenever it comes down to actors wearing fat suits, that's always the thing. You know, there are, there are plenty of, you know, fat actors that, that could have played that part better. And that wearing a fat suit, it's almost kind of like, uh, it's, it's almost like, oh, look, this actor made an incredible transformation and now all of a sudden they're better. Why, why couldn't they have gone for, for, for a bigger actor in the first place? I'm not really sure. I think it is a bit of a tricky one sometimes. The conversation doesn't really make much sense to me. It, it started back again there. I mean, and we're talking about films again that haven't been released there's a new Matilda coming and we saw you know the first look image of, of Emma Thompson's in that uh, Emma Thompson's character in that film and everyone's saying she wore a fat suit did she though I mean people have already kind of made their minds up before they've even seen the film it's such a tricky one Gordon and it's, it's it goes down that route of do you have to be a certain way or hold this belief or do you have to it's almost similar to the conversation should straight actors play gay roles or should gay actors play straight roles you know it's it's such yes. a tr- tricky and thorny issue Gordon we're not going to resolve it here today but I don't really fully understand this I can see where a lot of people are coming from but I don't really see, I don't fully understand it yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that conversation uh, continues now with the, the release of The Whale. But just to touch on some other films of note at this year's Venice Film Festival, Olivia, we were talking about this in great detail last week, Don't Worry Darling, and all the drama and palaver that's been going on behind the scenes between its director, Olivia Wilde, her star, Florence Pugh, 
And then Shia LaBeouf, who was supposed to be cast in the other leading role, but then he departed. Harry Styles was brought in. And of course, as anyone knows that now at this point, Shia LaBeouf is refuting the fact that he was fired from the film. So now we have the big premiere and Florence Pugh shows up, but she doesn't show up at the press conference. And then there's also this accusation that Harry Styles spat and is hit Chris Pine. Clear a lot of this up for us, Olivia. For those that may have missed a lot of this palaver as well, what went on? Okay, well, in addition to what we discussed last week, the actual premiere itself has just taken all of this drama to another level. Not a single person actually looked comfortable being around anybody when they were all together. It looks just like the most awful thing I've ever seen. So first off, Florence Pugh. She is actually in production on Dune 2 at the moment with Denis Villeneuve. And she couldn't make it to the press conference due to the scheduling conflict and arrived late to Venice. So she only arrived, I think... The first image of her that was there in Venice was just as the press conference was starting. So clearly, like her flight had only gotten in. Um, but then there was all these pictures going around of her swanning around with an Aperol spritz while the press conference was taking place. And everybody was just living for the drama that, oh, yeah, she is there, but she still wasn't going to show up. Uh, then you also have there's actually another rumor going around that I only read about today that actually Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde have split up because apparently her public asked him would he pose for a photograph with her and he point blank refused leaving things to be like extremely awkward between them and now a lot of people are talking that they have now actually split speaking of split you can't spell split without spit and then you have Harry apparently spitting on Chris Pine Um, that video aired uh, went viral after the screening itself so as he's taking his seat a video shows what looks like he is doing something. It's like a cough or a spitting motion. And then Chris Pine, who is sitting down, just stops clapping and looks down. And he seems to sort of go, oh, nice. And then, you know, nothing sort of happens. And everyone's just like, did, did he just spit on him? Like, what just happened? Now, Chris's rep has come out and said, like, this is an absolutely ridiculous story. It's a complete fabrication. You know, like, this just simply does not exist. Like, get over it. Like, you are all just trying to, like, create drama where there is none. But, like, poor Chris Pine. You Like, there was lots of photos and videos of him over the course of the, the event where he just looked absolutely miserable. You have Harry Styles saying in the Paris conference how you know he doesn't really feel like an actor and he doesn't know what he's doing and then the video of him just saying the word is like oh like you know like it feels like a movie you know like this movie just seems like a great movie and Pine's face just looks so unimpressed it's like come on lad come up with another word or another way of describing the film please and yeah you have to feel for him yeah and there's also another video circulating it looked as if Chris Pine was about to fall asleep I did see that one as well, where he's that's the one with the headphones on, isn't it? I think it's one, it's well, it's at the press conference and it's just like he's zoning out. He's just like, oh, I just don't, again, get me I don't out of here. Be here and I'm <laughs> My favorite thing about that, as it turns out, Chris Pine uses a flip phone still. <laughs> yeah. He does not. He does. Yeah. And oh, that's he was why. He's taking pictures on the red carpet of like a, like a disposable camera and they were like, why is he using that? I was like, well, he's using a flip phone that doesn't actually have one. I've gone through the spit video, like it's the Zapruder film. And from what I can see, because I've done it many times, is he has clearly gone, where are my sunglasses? Look down and sees, oh, they are right here on my leg. Picks them up and then rolls his eyes. Like, I've been looking for them for hours and they're right in front of me. Oh. So that, that's my take on what's happened on that. Could be Which I, I think it is as well. Way too many times. <laughs> 
I think that's exactly what it is as well because he does sort of like he's like clapping away then he looks down and he stops clapping and then you can kind of see the whole it's like oh my god and then he picks up the sunglasses and then puts them on as the lights go off in the cinema as well so that just adds to it I think as well as a man who has used the flashlight on his phone to look for his phone on more than one occasion (laughs) I can empathise for that and I can also empathise with Harry Styles because many a time on this show I have started talking and had no idea where I'm going and I've said things far worse than a movie feels like a movie that's a movie you know I second that I second that not for myself but for Andy <laughs> you said hey, Chris, fall was good that's way worse than anything I've ever hey, said listen let's, call this, let's move this along Gordon <laughs> let's do let's do um, uh, the Banshees of Inishirin got a 13 minute standing ovation uh, which like do you know I wonder from an actor's perspective do they feel uncomfortable you know after maybe three or four minutes you go this is grand 13 minutes and they, and they see then they all stood there um, but it just goes to show like this must be a very strong film, Chris. Look, Martin McDonough, it's the In Bruges team reteaming, and it's an interesting plot about two friends falling out. It is an interesting plot about two friends falling out, and it's very much in the wheelhouse of uh, you know Martin McDonough's plays as opposed to anything on film that he's given us before. People are are saying that it's the best thing he's done since In Bruges. Um, I quite liked Three Billboards. I mean, yeah. we're just going to forget the Seven Psychopaths existed um i quite like three billboards um but i didn't think it was as great as everyone as everyone said but yeah his theater work is probably the best work as far as i'm concerned so if he's created something like you know the cripple of inish man or anything like that then then we're in for something special a lot uh some of the reviews are pointing out just the, the chemistry between gleason and farrell the fact that you know gleason could be in line to uh uh for for, for an oscar nomination uh you know some some there are some surprises in store particularly for irish viewers that you know the john kenny and pat shorts are some screen time in I believe. Um, look, it is. It's about two friends falling out, but one of them doesn't know why the other doesn't like them anymore. But the friend who doesn't want to speak to the other, that's Brendan Gleeson's character, says that if Colin Farrell's character doesn't leave him alone, he will start to harm himself. And it all apparently plays out uh, with the uh, Irish Civil War uh, playing out in, 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 in the background. So we're kind of, we might be, you know, uh, in for some, you know, very heavy handed metaphors. But still, bringing on a 13 minute standing ovation, that's something else. Although, while we're on the subject of standing ovation, that has to be kind of painful. I mean, it, it, it's nice to be applauded. It's nice for everyone to come away and say something that you've worked on for a year is, is worthy of this, you know, praise. But 13 minutes, I mean, you wouldn't want to be in the room. You know, you wouldn't want to need the loo, Gordon. But that's exactly it. I think after a while, you kind of feel like you can all sit down now. All right, we got it. You liked it. You like. Can I just add, before we kind of get into some of the other movie stories from the week, I just want to kind of uh, dovetail back to uh, The Whale. Because, Andy, your old pal, it wouldn't be We Love Movies unless we had mentioned whether Jared Leto or good old Dwayne Drock Johnson. And Dwayne features because there's Brendan Fraser. He gets a six-minute standing ovation, nowhere near the good old Banshees of Inishirin. But still, six minutes nonetheless. And The Rock himself has had a comment about that. Of course he has, because The Rock and his team of 15 marketers, which is the only thing that's important to him, have gone through the trends on Twitter, seeing that Brendan Fraser is trending and thought, how can I make this about me somehow? So then he writes a tweet saying, good to see Brendan Fraser back at it. You know, this guy basically gave me my career and I'm always rooting for him. Guess when you weren't rooting from in the 10 years when he could have used you to root from? I looked it up because, you know, I'm a man of facts here, Gordon. Guess how many times Brendan Fraser has been mentioned by The Rock up until, so from the moment he finished the, the, the Scorpion King 
to the time Brendan Fraser got a standing ovation. It, you guess zero, you are 100% correct because <laughs> it was not in his self-interest to say anything about Brendan Fraser because he is pulling the ladder up behind him and he didn't want anything that will damage his brand in any way. Despite the fact, as he says, this man gave him a career. Wrestlers were doing mostly straight-to-video, terrible, you know, Thunder in Paradise, Hulk Hogan movies. He gave him a proper A-list franchise to star in, not to mention his own spin-off. And rather than go, look, he's a good guy, I'll give him a dig out, he's been through a bit. He's like, no, no, I'll wait till he gets back on his own, then I'll pretend that, you know, I've been supporting him behind the scenes all along. He is a self-serving, ladder-pulling-up git. And do you know what? I think it's a week's go by. I can see you and Wayne. Uh, any chance those Christmas cards are definitely not going to happen now at this stage. He's uh, he's he's fallen, fell. But let us move on to some of the, the other big movie stories. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 4, otherwise known as Beverly Hills Cop Axel Foley. They're really trying to go on the Top Gun Maverick style in here um, in terms of titles. Some photos have leaked from uh, the set. From what you've seen, Andy, does it does it offer much in terms of uh, casting? What we is, is it more run of the mill type of stuff that we would be used to? For me, Judge Reinhold and John Aston as the two cops come back into it, you need them. And I think a lot of those, you know, kind of reboots, re-engine, it's a lot of the peripheral characters are great crack. Like the, the banter between the two of them is every bit as important to me as um as Eddie Murphy and Axel Foley in the film. So I'm glad to see them come back. I'm hoping it does well. And I'm hoping it's not a case of another Bill and Ted, which was just absolutely horrendous to sit through. So we've been saying this for about 10 years in this show. This will be the Eddie Murphy comeback. Then he'll go back and he'll do stand up and it'll be the 1980s all over again. It's the hope that kills me, Gordon. And I, I'm going to cling on to it as long as I can because on one hand, The Rock's taking it out of me. And on the other hand, I'm hoping Eddie Murphy puts it back into me. And I could have phrased all of that so, so much better. Well, yeah, well, put it back into you. That, I didn't want to say, but uh, yeah, all right, Andy. <laughs> I think he doesn't hate the, the Rock as much as you think. Um, so uh, now, Tom Cruise, um, he, like the savior of cinema, really, in uh, 2022 with Top Gun Maverick. This man is defying all the odds again. What's he doing now, Andy? Well, he's promoting something, but he's hanging out of a plane. Is this for the new Mission Impossible? This is basically to get people back into cinemas. I think what's happened is his ex-wife, Nicole Kidman, done this multiply parodied video where she is sitting in a cinema awestruck like she has never seen moving pictures before in her life. And he's thought, yeah, look at you there, sitting in the cinema all comfortable. I'll show you how to get people back into the cinema. By standing on the side of a biplane screaming, I'll see you at the movies, as the director of Mission Impossible flies by in another plane, he's like, hey, Tom, we've got a movie to shoot. And he's like, God damn right we do, McHugh, and flies off. I love this. He is absolutely bananas. And if you haven't seen, he shot a video of going to see Tenant, like when cinemas reopened. Oh, yeah. And it is the most intense happiness you've ever seen in your life. It's Christian Bale hit the nail on the head. He, said, he modeled the character of American Psycho and Tom Cruise because he just said, it is psychotically friendly and dead behind the eyes. And that is the most perfect description of Tom Cruise I have ever heard. If, if you haven't seen it, just go with Tom Cruise, Tenant. It is absolutely hilarious. And then watch him hanging out of a plane, breaking his ankle, snapping his neck, believing in aliens and volcanoes, whatever. I'm still dying for Mission Impossible. I love Top Gun <laughs> and anything Tom Cruise does, I'm going to watch. Did Christian Bale say that he's, uh, uh, was it psychotically friendly and dead behind the eyes? Yeah, that's who he based uh, Patrick Bateman on, was based on Tom Cruise because he said he watched an interview with him on Letterman. He said he had this psychotic friendliness that was just nothing. It was just dead behind the eyes and he said that's what he based the character on, just basically a shell of a man. That is 
Brilliant. Um, now, we also have to say, um, Disney, um, they've been, uh, they're going all out um, with the Disney Day. So depending on when you listen to, to We Love Movies, but uh, Olivia, we have Comic-Con, which happens in San Diego and of course in Dublin as well. I have to forget, forget that as well. But um, Disney now have created their own big marketing um, day when it comes to releases. But they're going all out. It's a weekend now. So you've got like Disney Plus Day and then you've got um, all the other uh, bits and bobs and that happen over the weekend. So are we expecting much in terms of announcements? Oh, we are. Like I, for one... I'm just dying to hear if the Fantastic Four cast is going to be announced because there's been so many rumours leaking out now over the last couple of weeks that it just seems like they're getting ready to announce the full cast. Now, this kind of reminds me of when The Eternals was announced. They did do this big announcement at San Diego Comic-Con, but then they announced the rest of the cast at D23. 2119, I forget. Because <laughs> um, so their version of Comic Con uh, this year is called D23. It's like the Disney Fan Expo sort of style thing. And um, they do like to keep a lot of their other big announcements for it. So while we did get a lot of at San Diego Comic Con, we are also probably going to get a lot now um, over the course of the weekend. We have um, a section that's dedicated on to the games. We've got uh, Disney Marvel. We've got some Star Wars section going in there. And we've also got Disney Animation, Pixar, and uh, um, straight up just Walt Disney Studios. So okay. there's there's a lot going on. But for me, I think the big one is going to be the Fantastic Forecast announcement. And if it is not announced, there is going to be so many disappointed people. Uh, but I would also say don't uh, count out um, Kate Bishop, um, Hayley Steinfeld being announced in another project as well. Um, there's been a couple of whispers going around about her this week. So I would presume that that means that there's something going on there as well. Like, why do you think there is such an excitement for the Fantastic Four, bearing in mind cinema hasn't been good for them? I'd say it's purely because cinema hasn't been good for them and it hasn't been in Marvel's pocket up until now. So I think fans are kind of hoping that now that it's back into the Marvel fold, into the MCU officially, that they're going to be able to be the ones to do it justice. So hopes are high. And I think... The Fantastic Four are such an integral part of the comics and a lot of the storylines that are the the majority of the phases five and six are kind of being based on that, you know, you, you have to have them in there. So because we've been waiting so long to hear about it, like the anticipation has just built up to this point. So whether or not Penn Badgley will be announced as Mr. Fantastic or not remains to be seen. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear who they've picked. Okay, that is uh, hopefully um, the big news that might come out from all things Marvel at uh, Disney's days over the over the weekend. And just finally, finally, just to return to all things uh, comic book movie news, uh, we mentioned about how Brendan Gleeson has been getting rave reviews for the Banshees of Inishirin, and it looks like he's set to work with Todd Phillips, Andy, in Joker Two. Now, Joker Two is going to be a musical, so we might be able to hear. Uh, the Gleason uh, belt out a, a ditty in this sequel. Do we know much of his role or what's in store? No, we don't know anything. But anyone who's seen Paddington Two knows Brendan Gleeson can belt out whatever he wants, and no one's going to say a goddamn thing to the man. I'm very excited by this. I've just gone into overdrive. There's a million different characters he could play in this. Now, obviously, he could play an original character. There's rumors he could be the, the warden in Arkham. He could be Hugo Strange. I personally would love to see him play a character called the Ventriloquist, which, as you say, is a man who 
you know, as a crime boss who uses the dummy to basically do things for him. I'd love to see Brendan Gleeson do that role. And more than anything, I'm looking forward to seeing Brendan Gleeson, Lady Gaga and Joaquin Phoenix singing in a Joker sequel, which just sounds like a sentence that brings me joy no matter how many times I hear it. It just seems mad that they're doing a, a musical for the follow-up to Joker. I but wish they hadn't told anyone and just, not you know, the Sweeney Todd effect, just it's people sitting there the first day of the cinema and all of a sudden everyone starts singing and then 15 minutes they're going, oh, they're, they're not stopping. Yeah, ex- oh, that would have been amazing if they did something like that. Guys, thank you so much. That is part one of We Love Movies to a close, but in the second half, we're going to be taking a look at some of this week's new releases, one of which is the live-action version of Pinocchio from Robert Zemeckis, the director behind such hits as the Back to the Future trilogy, Forrest Gump. And then he's also made the likes of Welcome to Marwin and the recent Roald Dahl's adaptation, The Witches. Hmm. Could we be in good hands for this version of Pinocchio? We'll be finding out shortly. We love movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Welcome back to part two of We Love Movies. I'm Gordon Hayden. I'm joined by Chris Wasser, Olivia Fahey and Andy McCarroll. We're going to be taking a look at some of this week's new releases. First up is the new live action version of Pinocchio. This one is from Disney and it's gotten Tom Hanks playing Geppetto. And we've got Robert Zemeckis, his Forrest Gump director, in the hot seat behind the scenes. Let's take a clip from it and then we'll chat about it. Hello, Pops. Jumping keepers. An almost real boy. (laughs) Turn around, let me get a look at you. I will be right here when you get back. Pinocchio is running around loose without a conscience. Can you imagine the trouble he's going to get into? Wouldn't want that on my conscience. Everybody who's anybody wants to be a somebody. But I want to be real. Why on earth would you want to be real when you can be famous? Pinocchio should have been home by now. So we've got another live action version of a Disney classic. Robert Zemeckis is uh, the filmmaker behind Pinocchio and he's reteamed with his Forrest Gump and castaway star Tom Hanks. Chris, at this point, I'd be shocked if anyone didn't know the story to Pinocchio. But for those that do need a refresher, what's happening? (laughs) I would be too, Gordon. Uh, Look, it's the usual deal you know you've got this lonely woodcarver uh he's working away in his shop he has his ball full of clocks and how he continues to run a shop despite the fact that he refuses to sell anything that he makes is beyond me but he makes himself a a puppish boy that he then when when he goes to bed wishes upon a start that that boy will you know be a real boy we then get a visit from the blue fairy and in this case the blue fairy is uh, portrayed by cynthia Rivo. Uh, Geppetto, obviously the woodcarver is, is played by Tom Hanks. We'll come back to his performance in a minute. And he gets his wish come true. Now, Pinocchio becomes a real, you know, a, a, a real talking wooden boy, but not a real boy. So that's the next quest for for, for a little wooden protagonist. Uh, unfortunately, on his first day of school, he gets kidnapped by this wily fox and his cat sidekick. This has always been a part of the Pinocchio story that I found very confusing. And he ends up in a traveling circus. And it's up to Pinocchio then, and also his conscience, which comes in the form of a talking insect uh, named Jiminy Cricket, voiced here by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's up to the two of these lads to put their brains together and try and figure out a way to get back to poor Geppetto, who himself has also started to set off an adventure to try and find his boy. Hopefully that doesn't sound as confusing as it made it. No, you got it right there in a nutshell. Fair play to you, Chris. Um, 
Let's talk about the performance to Tom yeah. Hanks because um, if anyone remembers our review of Elvis, that performance as the Colonel was a real uh, sticking point for Andy. I just felt that he just wasn't great at all. Maybe it would have been felt miscast. Uh, paraphrasing there, Andy, what you thought of uh, Tom Hanks. But as Geppetto, I think for an awful lot of people would feel like, oh, great, it's Zemeckis and Tom Hanks working together again. Ah, They get the best out of each other. But do they in this time around? Uh, no, they do not. Um, I, 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 I really struggled with this film, Gordon. And it starts. I mean, it, I was going to say it starts well, but the first five minutes, I thought we could be in for something lovely here. This could be, you know, quite sweet. Uh, you know, once that music kicked in, I mean, we always hear "Wish Upon a Star" when you wish upon a star at the beginning of every Disney film. And with this, I was thinking, okay, look, this has you know added meaning, added, added resonance. This is going to be quite lovely. Jiminy Cricket's uh, 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 coming into the frame, voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who you know seems to be making quite the effort. I thought this we're onto something special, and then. A little bit of color was added to the screen, and you, I, I started to worry and think this is, looks, this this looks like every other Robert Zemeckis, you know, cartoon slash live action offering, a little bit creepy, and that sort of tone just stayed with it the whole way through. And so, like, it, it, a lot of talk has been made about how it's it's a live action film. It's not. It's half a cartoon. Which is, a, which is a bad start. But you have Tom Hanks acting up against, you know, a CGI cast, a CGI wooden boy, a CGI insect, you know, CGI seagull, CGI everything. And that's sometimes an impossible task for any actor. It doesn't matter if you're one of Tom Hanks' caliber. And he struggles with it. And I think another thing is Geppetto has never been a huge part of the Pinocchio story. He's always wandering around, wandering around somewhere, but he's not in an awful lot of us, whether it's on the page or on the screen. So it's up to Tom Hanks then to kind of leave a mark and ensure that when maybe he's off screen that we're looking forward to seeing him again. Instead, Tom Hanks kind of gives the sort of performance that tells us that maybe he had a couple of days free and thought he was doing Zemeckis a favor because I, I found the whole thing quite half-arsed. Um, and, and, you know, look, then, then looking at Pinocchio's side of the story and, you know, that, that's, that's where Zemeckis could have created something playful and, and wondrous and, and, you know, a feast for the eyes, particularly if, if you're, if you're going to present this film to people who have never experienced the Pinocchio story before. Unfortunately, in his hands, this is more of a, you know, uh, a Polar Express than a than you know a Roger Rabbit sort of sort of deal, and that is to say that the animation is quite cold and flat. The 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 any any attempts at humor are just completely they're just completely mis misfires. The jokes that is, um, it's astonishingly odd at times. And I just found that it was just overall quite charmless. I mean, the funniest thing in this film for me, Gordon, was that we can actually file it next to the Sea Beast now. That's a, a winning animation that's currently playing on, on, on that you can watch on Netflix as the second big children's film of 2022 to feature a swear word. I won't say the swear word, but let's just say that it rhymes with hydraulics. It's the second feature now to feature a villain saying that. And I'm thinking to myself, do Americans not get? That that's a bad word here. Yeah. <laughs> and that you're going to get kids watching the film going, well, if he said that, then clearly I can say that. That is the funniest thing about this Pinocchio. So that's that tells you right there that we're in trouble. Alib, I want to bring you in because you've seen this as well. And Zemeckis's career has been in a bit of a strange place, it seems, the last few years. 
Chris touched on Polar Express. He worked with uh, Tom Hanks on that. But the big takeaway was that nearly all the kind of the human characters had the cold, dead eyes of a killer. They had these shark eyes and it was very distracting. And what should have been a real magical film really did have this kind of creepy feeling, which Chris also touched upon with this take on Pinocchio. And then he followed that up with uh, A Christmas Carol wasn't there. And there was or Beowulf. I forget which one of them followed suit. And kind of felt like, oh, come on, Zemeckis, would you get back to the live action side of things? And he did then with Flight, which seemed like, okay, he might be back now to somewhat winning ways. And then he's gone off and then he made Welcome to Marwin, which kind of was very flat. And he felt like the wrong director for that gig. And the same thing then recently with the adaptation of The Witches. And now we get Pinocchio. And again, you're like, oh, Zemeckis, you wouldn't even know he was behind the camera. And dare I say, for an awful lot of people, they mightn't even be aware that there's a live action version of Pinocchio hitting cinemas this weekend because it seems like it's gone right under the radar all round. So it, I don't know, are Disney confident in this film, do you think, Olivia? Well, I would actually probably say that I don't think they are purely because I'm not even sure it is hitting cinemas. I actually think it's only going to Disney Plus, which kind of makes you think that if if it's not getting that cinematic release, then you know maybe they're they're trying to keep it just for the Disney Plus subscribers, trying to build that up. Especially it's landing on Disney Plus Day um, on September eighth, so maybe that's why they're they're trying to just build that up a little bit more, and that's why it's being kept out of cinemas. But at the end of the day, for the money that's going into this, and for the the cast and the behind the camera sort of team, you would expect it to be getting um, a cinematic release. I didn't seem to hate it as much as Chris seemed to hate it. And I actually thought that the the kind of, the Pinocchio has always been a very dark story. So it having kind of darker undertones made sense to me. Um, it, it's actually one of those films that I was never mad about. Me being the, the resident Disney nerd here, there was a Disney film that I wasn't ex- exactly crazy about as a kid, and that was Pinocchio. But overall, I kind of think that it definitely works for what they were going for because it is, at the end of the day, a kid's film. There are a lot of jokes in there that are put in there for the kids. So Jiminy Cricket, at one point, when he's observing uh, Geppetto making the, the wooden boy, he's actually leaning on the backside of a woman who's looking shocked. And like that's going to get giggles out of children. And yes, there are a few other jokes thrown in there that might be a little more adult, um, like as Chris pointed out there. But at the end of the day, it is still very much like the performances are very much for children. The design is very much for children. And in terms of like the CGI and the overall look, the only times that I thought that it didn't actually work was when it was the humans interacting with the kids. And considering, um, not kids, gosh, the the CGI characters, um, but that for me just didn't really work. When you've seen it go so seamlessly with um, Chippendale Rescue Rangers recently, um, like there's a couple of moments in there where it's just like a flawless sort of like go from the the cartoon character and um, like when they're going into the school and the human takes a headset off one of the goats going into the school. Like that was seamless. This, there's a scene where Gebetto is like holding a Pinocchio as he's cleaning the floor and that just looks completely off. So it's those little things that that aren't working here. And considering Zemeckis was behind Who Framed Roger Rabbit, that for me, I also think is kind of unforgivable because he kind of set the bar for this stuff. And now it's not really working anymore but yeah overall it's definitely a kids film that's kind of the best way I can describe it 
it just seems like what Tarantino had said about directors, whereby they kind of hit a sell by date. And that's why for him, he's getting out of the filmmaking business once he hits his 10th film, um, because he just feels, yeah, directors, they start to wane and the, the quality does start to really dip. And I think Zemeckis has, is very much in a bit of an L, uh, a bit of a, a bit of a marshland there at the moment. It just seems like he's just trudging through sludge because he just can't seem to get back to that Zemeckis who made the likes of Forrest Gump. And I remember, remember that other World War II film he made with Brad Pitt. Remember that? Um, that just seemed to kind of come and go as well. Um, but I just, but just quickly before we move on, out of ten, Chris for Pinocchio. I just thought it was quite charmless and quite cheap looking in places, like a, a a very bizarre and sometimes creepy pantomime that often forgot as well that it was a musical. And just finally, Gord, just to mention something because you mentioned Tarantino there. I remember Mark Kermode saying a few years back about Tarantino that, you know, his problem with Tarantino after making eight films and four of which disappointed him or something was that it wasn't, it wasn't that he expected the worst of Tarantino. He expected the best because, you know, he used to give us films that were so good. He showed us how good he was that mm. often when he made bad things it was like that's there's no excuse for that we know how good you can be i feel exactly the same way about Zemeckis. you gave us back to the future dude you gave us forrest gump and i'm one of maybe the few people now that still think forrest gump is you know it is a bit of a triumph still you know i mm. quite enjoy castaway yeah, yeah, yeah. i quite enjoy flight we know how good this guy can be why is he this bad so i'm sorry i'd say Guillermo the terrorist one is probably i'll still watch that i'm still looking forward to it it's out in december but this pinocchio didn't do it for me so it's four out of ten for olivia for you I liked it a little bit more than that, but not much. Um, I would probably give it a six out of 10. Um, It's definitely not a film that's aimed at me. And it's already a story that I wasn't necessarily um, like dying to see um, get a live action adaptation. So a six, I think, is is fair. Okay, Pinocchio is uh, playing on Disney Plus. And I thought it was playing directly into cinemas. I'm actually kind of shocked that it's it's bypassed them altogether. Before we move on, two films are returning to cinemas this week. Can you guess what they are from these clips? The shark. He's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes. Like a doll's eyes. Can't tell. Not even mom. What's happening? I don't know. Something scary. You look great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now if you know your films, you'll know definitely that it was E.T. and Jaws. Andy, they're returning to select cinemas. Why? It is the the forty fifth anniversary of Jaws and the sorry the fiftieth anniversary of Jaws and the fortieth anniversary of E. T. Which makes me feel ancient now. Uh, both obviously Steven Spielberg films, both probably strong contenders for two of the greatest films of all time. And if you see hearing uh, Olivia and Chris go through you know the reviews of the week, kind of makes you feel what happened to films like this now. E. T. for me was one of the, the the first films I remember watching growing up. I loved it so much. I actually wrote to Steven Spielberg because the only films I kind of knew growing up was Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T., which I found out were all done by the same person. So I assumed he made every film. Mm-hmm. Uh, sent him my opus three-page screenplay about a boy who finds an alien in the back garden. 
you know, not stealing from him at all. Unfortunately, he never wrote back and I never got to have that collaboration with Spielberg. So if he's listening, I, I'm still open to that. But it, even watching that now, like when you hear like Jaws 50 years old, E.T. 40 years old, you watch them now and people watching them for the first time, they still retain their magic. They're still just incredibly well-made movies. And just that emotional resonance, E.T. in particular, I, I cannot watch that without bursting into floods of tears. And I know what you're thinking. We're talking about old films. We have to have Andy's ridiculously useless fact. And my useless fact for E.T. is the girl that Elliot kisses in the classroom grew up to be Eureka Elenik from Under Siege. So next time you're watching that now and it's, you know, the, the little innocent kiss in the classroom, just think of where she ended up jumping out of a cake in Under Siege. <laughs> uh, but the other thing as well is, though, with E.T., what's quite clever about it as well is... Um, the way a lot of the adults are shot in the film, it, it, he almost, the way Spielberg, he kind of really gets it from a child's perspective. You never really see, especially in the early part of the film, their faces. It's almost yeah. like the lower part of their body, almost like a Tom and Jerry film where the adults, you know, you'll only ever see their legs. Almost again, trying to create this almost sinister approach that you, that you wouldn't trust them. Again, it's the use of the camera work as well as fantastic. He does, and he gives that real sense of isolation. And Spielberg is very upfront that he drew the story from very inspired by his parents' divorce, and kind of he thought this, you know, this family unit that would stay together forever. And all of a sudden, you know, the adults, the people that meant the most in his life, you know, essentially how he felt lied and betrayed him by leaving him, essentially. And he put that into it. You know, we're the only people you can trust, and these are, you know, an alien who came from another planet. So, and again, as someone who grew up in a, a single parent household, maybe that's why I related to that. And if there's any therapists who want to uh, ring the show and, and give me some consultations, I'm very open to that as well. But like you said, it, it is, it's, it's just something that you can watch on a surface level and just go, oh yeah, boy likes an alien. That's great. But then you can look into all these like additional things with the, not to mention that the music is incredible. The music is actually one of the, I think it's the only thing, that and the sound are the only things that got the, the Oscar for. Gandhi absolutely blew it away at the Oscars, which, you know, how many times have we gone back to watch Gandhi? How many times have we gone back to watch E.T.? And to me, this is just one of many reasons why for me Spielberg is the best director of all time. He has gone through so many genres and just perfected nearly every single one of them. And E.T., Jaws, we're, you know, we're going to touch on Jaws later, but just E.T. for me is just something that I cannot watch without just tears streaming from my eyes. I appreciate how it's made. I appreciate the performances. The special effects still look incredible. We're talking about Pinocchio, about you know the the, the dead eyes on Canny Valley. Little things like you know, it's a woman who smoked forty cigarettes a day doing the voice of ET. Just these silly little behind the scenes movie magics that just make it so much more special than pretty much anything I think I've watched in the last 30 years since. Well, if you take something out, like we move on to Jaws, from the minute that film starts, you know that like he gets the the tone, the tension, the horror straight away. And you know the type of film that you're in for. And it, it really is. It's a action adventure horror movie with a great cast, amazing behind the scenes stories that went on with it as well which would make for a film in itself. And I've watched that film so many times as a kid and the music, again, everything. It's just such a gem and hence why it could never be in any way eclipsed, even with all those horrendous sequels that just are forgotten about now at this point. But what is it about Jaws for you, Andy, that still retains its power? The reason for me this does so well, and it's the reason why, and it's great because we have the examples of the sequels of what they 
got wrong from the film. The sequels focus on the shark. The shark is the least important part of Jaws. You ask, I'd say, 99% of people who love this film, what's your favorite part of it? It's going to be, you know, the, the Indianapolis speech. It's going to be something involving the three lads basically sitting in a boat in the middle of nowhere chasing the monster. There is obviously the, you know, the, the, the trailer moments, as I call them, with the shark. But everything in that is about these three lads who you would never in a million years cast together now for a film like this. They're the ones that bind it together and they're the ones you love it. For me, my favorite scene, is, and it's a scene that, again, if you were to remake this, this is a scene you would take out to cut for time. It's when Brody's sitting with his kid before he goes out and the kid is kind of mimicking what he's doing. And then at the end, Brody just calls, goes, give me a hug. And the kid's like, why? He goes, because I need it. And just that like little 30 second scene when he goes out on the boat and Brody starts getting in trouble, you care about him because you've seen, mm-hmm. okay, this isn't just, you know, him talking about the kid or him talking about his wife doesn't mean it but because we have this little moment like okay i have a sense of what he's like at home he's a good dad he's you know he's a good husband and if anything happens to him you see the effects of what that would have on the family rather than him going oh i've 10 kids of this of that they're the ones i i really love that film for those little human moments in it yeah the shark thing is great and everything on that side but i, I just love the relationship with the three of them and that indianapolis speech you know you put that on anywhere and that's just going to be absolutely gangbusters oh i cannot wait in select cinemas and it's getting the imax treatment as well and which is brilliant Uh, so jaws 50th anniversary et 40th anniversary imax screenings do check them out if you can and finally finally chris uh, we're going to go back to a new release uh it's a whodunit and it's got an all-star cast in this film as well I don't know too much about it, I have to say. The film in question is called See How They Run. Saoirse Ronan, she's part of the cast. She is part of the cast. And I must say, Gordon, this one surprised the hell out of me um, because I was fully expecting to go in, uh, watch this and come out and say that, look, Knives Out has a lot to ask for and that, you know, far too many people think that they can do new things with the whodunit genre now. And really, it's just the same as everything we've seen before. This isn't. Um, and the story might kind of sound sort of similar. And it also might think make you think that it's a complete send up or maybe like some some cheap spoof. But it's an awful lot more than that. It's set in the 1950s in London, and it actually concerns the production of Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, uh, in which, you know, Richard Attenborough is the star. We have Harris Dickinson, last scene in Where the Crawdads Sing, portraying Richard Attenborough uh, in a very funny performance, actually. And the story is that The Mousetrap has had its 100 performance, it's a proper West End smash, and that a major motion picture is in the works. So everyone involved in the play and everyone also involved in the forthcoming film has uh, gathered for this, you know, well-deserved uh, uh, party at the theatre. And among the attendees is this narcissistic Hollywood director by the name of Leo Kopernik, uh, played by Adrian Brody. And he hates murder mysteries, but he's actually, you know, been hired by the team to direct this. And he thinks that he'd be able to do his own thing with it. You know, I'm going to mix things up. I'm going to incorporate a shootout. I'm going to do something different. There's just one problem that nobody is allowed to make the film until the play stops running. And if you know anything about Agatha Christie or about the mousetrap, you know that the play never stopped running. It's It's the world's longest running play. So that's one problem. And the other problem is that everyone hates Leo. He's made enemies everywhere. The film's screenwriter hates him. The film's leading man, you know, the play's leading man hates him. Uh, everyone he everyone he goes near, he just rubs it the wrong way. So when he shows up dead, when his body, his bludgeoned body shows up dead on, on stage, there are all these people involved in the mousetrap and involved in the, in, the, in the film that never got made that are the suspects. And it's down to this rookie constable played by Saoirse Ronan. She's this plucky Irish officer who is basically new to the job. She's looking to leave her mark on the Metropolitan Police Service. But, you know, she's a little too diligent. Like she just takes notes from 
everything and accuses everybody of being the killer. You've got her and you've got this uh, boozy inspector stopper played by Sam, Sam Rockwell, who's a bit of a veteran, but also, you know, his approach to police work is basically not showing up on time and just nipping off the pub for a swift half. You put the two of them together. It's down to these two to solve the crime. So it's a whodunit within a whodunit. Away we go. Oh, I love the sound of this. Out of 10, Chris, what are you giving us? I loved it. I really did. Uh, it's quite inventive. It's quite funny. Um, it, 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 it unravels the genre, which it also adheres to. Um, so it's quite, you know, it has a great deal of fun kind of poking holes, but it's never just pointing the finger and laughing. You know, it's way too clever for that. It's sort of a cross between Knives Out and Only Murders in the Building. And I should say, Saoirse Ronan, she has made comedies before, but, you know, in kind of fronting something like this, this is new territory for her. And without her, the film will be just fine. With her, it's She's brilliant in it, and I give it eight out of ten. Oh, strong scores there all round. Um, if you just missed the name of that, it's called See How They Run. Sounds like a very inventive who done it, and um, which is playing in cinemas uh, this weekend. Guys, thanks so much for your time. That was Chris Wasser, Andy McCarroll, Olivia Fahey. We will do it all again next week. For me, Gordon Hayden, we'll chat to you right here on Spin.